Today's reading will be taken from 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. She had served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went out to his, went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman sent went with his horses and chariots and stopped to the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to, to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not a banner and farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. 
but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of women to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of women, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. The next reading will be taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of God. Good evening. Uh, Welcome to Christchurch Mayfair. Very good to have you here. My name's Matt, one of the ministers here. Now we're in 2 Kings chapter 5 this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you uh, for your word to us. Thank you that you've not left us in this world without uh, your voice. And so thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you've spoken as your word has been read to us. And we pray as we sit under your word together now that you would change us, that you would form us by your word and send us out in obedience to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now in 2 Kings chapter 5 this evening, and we're really in, uh, if you've been with us in the last few weeks, a little series on sin. So pictures that the Bible gives us to help us to understand what sin is. And so this evening we've called uh, our sermon Sin as Leprosy. Sin as Leprosy. So I just want to start for a few minutes by telling you about this terrible disease. It's a disease that eats away at you and is horribly invasive. It can numb and disfigure you. It can put you on the outside of a community. It can affect absolutely every part of your life and no doctor can cure it. The disease, of course, is not leprosy. But sin, or specifically in this chapter, pride. Pride lies underneath what we're going to see in the course of this chapter. Sin, sin can warp you, sin can disfigure you. Ultimately, says the Bible, sin can put you outside, not just of the people of God, God's community, but outside of relationship with him. Is that serious? Of course, this chapter that we've got in front of us is a story 
about leprosy. But there's something I, I hope we'll see that's deeper that's going on as well. Actually, it is a fantastic picture. If you've come across this story before, it's a real Bible favorite. It's a fantastic picture of someone coming to faith in the God of the Bible, the one true God. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture of this conversion of this guy who starts the story far away from God. And I want to look at it for a few minutes together. And you've got some headings, I hope, on the sheet that would help you through that. And it starts this story with Naaman's terrible disease. Naaman's terrible disease. And so we join the story. It's probably the year about 850 BC. And we meet Naaman. And it's clear right from the start of the story that Naaman is a somebody. Here is a man who has everything. Look down if you've lost your place, page 373. Just look down at those first couple of verses. Do you see that first verse? How it lists his CV and it's an impressive one. He's a four-star general or something like that in the Syrian army. He's a trusted advisor of one of the most powerful kings of his day. He's been used by the Lord Yahweh for a string of military victories. He's a famous soldier with what it seems like is a supportive wife. He has everything. He has everything. And yet, end of the verse, a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Do you hear that that thud at the end of that verse? That above all things, in spite of all of his CV, seems to mark him out. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. It marked him out, and so that if you'd met him, your eye would not have been drawn to the string of medals across his chest, but the warts, disfigurement of his face. That's what would have caught your attention immediately. If you'd heard of him and all his achievements, you'd still have said his is he the one who, is he the one who, and every, yeah, he's the one, he has leprosy. That's right. He's that one. Maybe they even use that label, which understandably I think um, people try and avoid today, leper, because it just puts a label on it, sums up the entire person just in that word. People would try and avoid that uh, today, but perhaps they use that, put him in a box. He's a, he's a leper. Yeah, he's a valiant soldier, but he's a leper, and certainly it's clear from verse 3, that it dominated the conversation of those who were closest to him. It's what they talked about when they knew the issue that he faced. It was a terrible disease. It was a terrible disease. And in fact, the the king of Israel in verse 7 knows what a terrible disease it is, knows that there's nothing can be done about it. It's like a death sentence upon you. Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? I mean, he knows how serious it is. As, as, as the letter arrives through his door, he says, are you, I mean, are you taking the mickey? You know, what are you saying? Is this some sort of practical joke that you're sending me a letter saying, can you cure this guy of leprosy? I can't do that. Oh, my God. It's a terrible disease that Naaman has. I just step offline for a minute. We're thinking this evening about uh, sin as leprosy. So this word you'll see at the footnote at the bottom, it translates the, the word skin disease. It may be the same as um, what is called Hansen's disease today, modern term for uh, leprosy. It may be uh, a similar or something like that. But I just want to think quickly about what the Bible says, uh, two things about 
uh, that. The first is this. So leprosy in the Bible is not the same as sin. And then secondly, it is used as a picture of sin. So it's not the same as sin. So we have to be very, very careful. The Bible does not say, nowhere does it say, that those who catch leprosy contract it because they're morally sinful. It's not a result of sin. It's not a divine curse. In fact, Jesus warns against that sort of thinking in the New Testament. So, for example, there's a guy who's blind. And they say, is this guy blind from birth because of his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, be careful, it doesn't work like that. That's his general principle on that. Now, occasionally, occasionally, just flick to chapter, this chapter, verse 27. Occasionally, as in verse 27, leprosy is as, as a result of sin. Here and with the king Uzziah and with Miriam back in Numbers, occasionally, it's used like that. But normally, big picture, normally, it's just a part of being in a fallen world where bacteria causes debilitating and terrible disease. So this is the first thing. Leprosy in the Bible, it's not the same as sin. And yet the Bible does use it as a picture of sin to help us to understand something of the effect of what sin does. So in the Old Testament, there are... A, there are a range of things that would make a person unclean, ceremonially unclean. And leprosy, this particular skin disease, was one of them. I mean, you can imagine why. Uh, in a nomadic community, especially if you're living in a, in a camp in the desert, an infectious skin disease running through the camps is going to cause havoc. And so people were said to be unclean, were put outside the camp for a time. There's no suggestion in those days of, of colonies. But until they could be inspected by the priest and brought back into the community, they were said to be unclean. And so they stayed outside of the camp in, in lonely places. It must have been very isolating and terrible in that day. And so the Bible uses that as a picture of sin. So we get to the New Testament and Jesus says, as we saw last week in Mark 7, that outer uncleanness is not the real problem. That's not the real problem. It's inner uncleanness. It's what comes out of a man's heart that actually makes us unclean before God. That's the real problem. But God uses this picture of uncleanness, of being put outside. God uses that as a picture of the effect of sin. In other words, the effect of this corrosive disease is that it isolates you from others and from the community of God. And the Bible says sin. That's what sin does. That's the effect of sin in this world. Isolates us from each other. And if untreated in eternity, will isolate us forever from the God who made us and his people in heaven. So do you see how that works? Just two things as we come back to the passage. Leprosy is not the same as sin, but it is used as a picture of sin. And so back in our passage, those reading this, those reading verse 1 would have got this. Uh, the Lord had given victory to him. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And those reading this would have, would have got this. Here is, here is in neon lights an outsider of the people of God. He's not from the historic people of God and he has leprosy. This is a guy on the outside and the, maybe those reading it thought, well, 
Is God really interested in those sorts of people? Maybe he won't be, but they were wrong. In fact, if you read on in the second half of the story, it's the opposite. Those who are inside, a guy called Gehazi, ends up on the outside. And the one on the outside, Naaman, ends up on the inside. God is interested in this man. In fact, did you notice in verse 2, God in his sovereignty puts a, a captured Israelite girl in his path. She's unnamed. We don't know her name, but it's a lovely, one of the most lovely cameo roles in the Bible, just a picture of God in his kindness, just putting someone in the way of this man. And so I imagine her, do you imagine verse uh, 3, she said to her mistress, I imagine this is like in Downton Abbey where the, the maid and the mistress are always sort of talking and, you know, she's combing her hair at night. They're just having those conversations. I imagine it's just like that in verse 3. So I'm told, actually, you know, Downton's great stuff. It's great stuff. I'm not ashamed to say that uh, at all. There she is, you see. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. If only your husband would go and see this guy. She, He'd cure him. He'd cure him. And so they write a letter. That's the first thing then. Do you see, it's a terrible disease. But God is concerned. And in fact, secondly, God is concerned for Naaman's deeper problem. Let's come to that secondly. Naaman's deeper problem. And we see that in verse 8. Now I just want you to notice with me an odd thing in verse 8 onwards. If you'd been reading through two kings, Elisha has just done incredible miracles. In the chapter before, there's a guy who's dead, who he raises from the dead, from the grave. And so you would have thought that healing leprosy would be no big deal to Elisha. That just with a word, he could speak and the guy would be healed. And and yet notice with me, that yet when Naaman comes, he doesn't just say a word. In fact, he deliberately puts obstacles in his way because he's after Naaman's deeper problem. He's after his pride. His pride. So just look at verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. So Naaman comes and he parks his chariot on the front drive of the house of the prophet. And I imagine the neighbours were all out there poking their heads through the neck curtains just having a look. The general just come into town and parked his chariot on the front there. Now what would you expect? You'd expect Elisha to come bustling out with his servants and say, I mean, we can do valet parking for you. We can wash the chariots. What do you want? What do you None of that. Verse 10. Elisha doesn't even come out to him. He stays inside. He sends a messenger out to him. In fact, there's no indication that Naaman and Elisha even meet each other until verse 15, until after he's washed. How insulting. How insulting. Basic manners just seem to be lacking in this prophet. And then there's the message that he sends the messenger out with as well. What do you make of this in verse 15? Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. I mean, Naaman is clearly an intelligent guy. He's a commander. He's planned strategic battles. I mean, don't you think he'd thought of 
having a wash. I mean, don't you think that it just crossed his mind to maybe just have a wash and just see if that brought the leprosy off? I mean, it's it's insulting. And I think deliberately so. And in fact, that's the exact point that gets Naaman. Just look at verse 11. Verse 11, he went away angry and said, I thought that he'd surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. I thought he'd at least come out and do some sort of magic, you know, Jedi hocus pocus and just do something special. He didn't even come out to me. Verse 6, he hasn't... He hasn't even bothered to see the letter that I have in my back pocket from the king or the 6,000 shekels or the clothes that I've bought from Harrods and Prada and Gucci. He hasn't even, he hasn't even bothered. He's just stayed in his house. And then verse 12. Aren't Abana and Farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? I mean, couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? I mean, any idiot... Any idiot can go and wash in the River Jordan. This is insulting. Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know where I've come from? Doesn't he know the credentials that I have? And so he goes off in a rage. Because what is said to him is, well, what would you say? It's too simple. It's, it's too free. He's got money in his wallet if he needs. It's, it's too exclusive. I mean, the Jordan, what's wrong with the other rivers? And so he goes off. In a rage. Do you see the deliberate action of Elisha to touch Naaman's deeper problem? His pride. That's what's being exposed here. And this is always, it's always our deeper problem. It's always the heart of sin. Pride. Me at the center. My performance is always at the heart of it. And it surfaces. It surfaces when we first come to God. And it's not easily cured in the Christian life either. It continues afterwards. It surfaces when we come to God because we think, well, he should accept my performance and my credentials. And God says, your solution to coming into my people will not work. You have to accept the solution that I provide. And the more God says that, I have provided a solution and you have to trust it. The more God says that, the more we realize he's not just saying something about the solution, but he's saying something about us as well. He's saying that we can't get ourselves washed of leprosy, cured of sin. And in saying that, he touches the deeper problem. The problem in all of us. Now just pause. I don't have a problem, I don't know about you, I don't have a problem with, generally, with trusting other people and their solutions, especially actually in the, in the medical world. So let me give you an example. I went to see the doctor recently, I had a problem with my toe, and he said to me, um, you have a, you have a toe infection. In fact, he said you have fungal foot rot, which was, I'm not, no, anyways, quite a, anyway, he basically said you've got a toe infection in one of, in, I shouldn't have said that, should I? I might need this crutch, there we go. He said you have a toe. Now when he said that, here's what I wanted. I wanted something simple. I wanted something ideally free and not on prescription. And I wanted something exterior and I quite wanted it quickly. That's what, that's all I cared about. Just something simple. Cause in one sense it's not, it's not a part of my deep me. 
But imagine he'd said this. Imagine he'd said to me, my diagnosis is this. You are a weak person. I mean, he could have. It would have been a bit harsh. But uh, imagine that he'd said, my diagnosis of the problem is this. You, Matt Lloyd, are a weak person. Can I tell you what would have happened there? I, at that point, and it's weird, isn't it? At that point, I don't want a simple exterior thing. I want, I want something complex, actually. I want something hard won. I want something from the inside so that I can go back to him a few weeks later and say to him, I am not a weak person and I've just shown you by the things that I have done. Now, why is that? Why in one of them do I not care? I just want something quick and simple. Well, because toe and faith doesn't touch the deep me. But when he says to you are a weak, but he's saying something about me. And at that point, I want to show him. I want to show him that I'm not. You see, if the problem is not connected to the deep me, I'll have something simple and free and exterior. But if you start to say something about the deep me, then I want something complex to prove myself. And you see, that's what's going on here with Naaman. So verse 13, it comes out. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Naaman wanted to do a great thing. He wanted to go on a quest. He wanted to do something complex to prove that he was worthy. He wanted to go on a journey, find a process. But God is saying something about the deep him and he doesn't like it. And you know, that's just the same as anyone's looking in on the Christian faith, thinking about coming into a relationship with God. You see, I have friends who would, who would go on a, in fact, I was speaking to someone this week, who would go on a pilgrimage to Walsingham in Norfolk, would, would go on a journey there to get into heaven. I have friends who would want to follow some complex process or sophisticated theology. And the more that you say that's not what God is interested in to get you into heaven, the more they would Try harder. Try to prove themselves. I have friends like that, but who will not. Who will not trust in the solution that God has provided to get into heaven and pay for our sins. And God's solution is very simple. It's trust in the simple, free, exclusive, yes, death of Jesus Christ, which looks so weak, so small, so beneath us that I would need to trust in a carpenter who died 2,000 years ago on the cross to get into heaven. And then the New Testament says that's exactly what we need because that was the solution God provided to pay for our sins. 1 Corinthians 1 says it like this. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So can I ask you, will you trust in the solution that God has provided or will pride stop you? And if you're trusting in it, don't move on from that. It is the solution. You don't need something more complex than that. God has provided the cross for you. Pride was Naaman's deeper problem. And it's our problem too as we seek to look for something cleverer than what God has provided. So there's the second thing. It's Naaman's deeper problem. Let's look briefly and finally at God's surprising cure. Verse 13. 
Naaman's servants went up to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? See, so he's got some wise servants. They say, look, if it said climb a mountain or go and save a maiden from a castle, you'd have done it. All he's asking is that you go into the Jordan and wash yourselves seven times. He's got some sensible servants around him, and so he does. And verse 14, he goes down into the water, covered in warts, and he comes up with flesh like that of a young boy. Don't you think it must have been an amazing moment? What a wonderful relief after so many years. After so many years for the disfigurement, for the shame to have gone, and now for him to be clean and washed at last. Do you see, God's cure was simple, it was free, it was exclusive, but it was effective. <laughs> and total. And in fact, the climax of the story is really the next verse. His, his new relationship with God. So verse 15, he comes back to the man of God and stands at last before him and says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. I mean, that's a... That's a classic Old Testament statement of of faith. Get it on another occasion in Joshua 2 when Rahab, a, a, a prostitute outside of the people of Israel, says, your God is the only God. And Naaman's saying something like that as well. Or he, he says in verse 17, when I go back to my land, I'm not going to make any other sacrifices to any other God but Yahweh, your God. You see, this is the climax. That's why this isn't just a story about how a guy got rid of his leprosy. It's about how a guy got rid of his paganism and came into a relationship with the God of the Bible. And that happened because he accepted the solution that God provided. To do that, he had to be humbled. But when he accepted it, well, the solution was effective and total. God's surprising cure. And I just want to push this in two ways as we close. Naaman's deeper problem was pride. And it's our problem too. And can I say, if you'd be looking in on this and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this evening, will you accept the solution that God provides? It might look surprising to you, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but will you accept it? We see a bit of how that washing happens if you turn to Mark chapter 1, the second reading that we had, Mark chapter 1. How does this washing happen? How does someone get washed not just in the river Jordan, but washed clean from their sin? Well, we see a little bit of that on page 1003 in Mark 1. As Jesus Christ on earth met people who had leprosy. And here's one occasion that we get in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. Must have spent years walking around saying unclean, unclean, unclean. Everywhere he went, unclean. Everywhere he goes, into every cafe and shop, unclean. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus is filled with compassion for him. And reaches out his hand and touches him. But notice this. At the start of the story, it is the man with leprosy who is tragically outside and unclean, lonely, but what about the end of the story? What happens? Well, it's odd, isn't it? He goes and blurts out. And as a result, Jesus Christ could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely 
places. Just where this man had been, no doubt. To see how does someone, how does someone come in? How does someone get washed? How does someone get the disease of pride and sin dealt with? How does that happen? If you're looking in, how does it happen? Well, Jesus Christ at the cross had to go outside into the loneliness so that you and I could come in. It was a swap. And I think we get a little picture of that in Mark chapter one. He went out so that we could come in. Will you trust? Will you trust in the simple, free, exclusive, effective, total death of Jesus Christ? God's surprising cure. But I said at the start as well that if you're a Christian, pride is not magicked away at conversion. It's not magicked away, and you know that and I know that. And the way to grow is to see that because of Jesus we are clean. Just flick back to 2 Kings chapter 5 and just notice something as we close. 2 Kings chapter 5, page 373. Notice how Naaman finishes the story. For a start, he finishes clean, verse 14. And that humbles our pride because Jesus and not you was the one who made you clean. It always humbles us when we realize that as Christians. That it's because of him that the shame, that the stain is gone. Or as we sing in a minute, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, he, not me, washed it white as snow. So we grow as we see that it's because of Jesus that we're clean. But the other thing, just notice at the end of the story, the way that we grow is to see that because of Jesus, we're now his servants. Do you see verse 17 and 18? How many times you get it? Verse 17, I'm your servant. Verse 17, I'm your servant. Verse 18, may I your servant. Verse 18, may I your servant. What an extraordinary transformation in a guy who pitches up at the start and is the impressive general who has everything. He's changed. He's been changed as he met God. He comes as an impressive servant, but he leaves. So he comes as an impressive general. He leaves as a forgiven servant. And that's how we, if we're Christians, go out into this week. I don't know what lies in store for you this week, but each situation, you know, you go to work. Or you're working on your marriage. Or you have decisions to make. You have stresses. At every level in those, you and I will find that pride, our deeper problem, just rears its ugly head again. We say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to serve her. I don't want to keep going. Well, will you face those things as Naaman did as a forgiven servant? Not as an impressive general, but as a forgiven servant of the one who has made you clean. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the total and effective cleansing that you offer for our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we who know what it's like to be forgiven, to be given a fresh start in life, as we know that, we pray that you'd help us to uh, live this week 
in the certain knowledge of shame and stain and sins forgiven and cleansed because of him. And then help us, we pray, to live as your servants, uh, serving and following the one who has brought us that cleansing. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.